This morning we actually come to the second to last Sunday in our Rebuild series. Uh, we'll be finishing it up next week. This is not a Bible study of the book of Nehemiah, but rather it's using uh, parts of Nehemiah, specifically uh, the earlier parts of Nehemiah, to understand how the call of God comes upon each and every one of us to be a part of rebuilding our lives, rebuilding our world, rebuilding our relationships. And that call comes in the midst of great disruption. It comes in the midst of great difficulty. It comes in the midst of times like we find ourselves now. Today, as we said, is also Pledge Sunday. It's where in a few minutes we will invite everybody here to come forward to be a part of uh, making a financial pledge to building a budget in 2022 that seeks to do this work of rebuilding. It seeks to be faithful in this call of God and to be uh, a leading presence in our own lives, in our, our, our city, and in our world. But before we read the scripture passage today, I want to I remind us of where we are, and then we're going to have a little conversation for a second. Uh, so we're going to interact uh, for a minute. So I'm just warning you now, we're going to interact, and you're going to have to talk a little bit. Um, where we are is, last week we looked at the end of chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, there was a speech that Nehemiah makes to the people of Jerusalem saying that, like, come and, and, and let us rebuild the wall. God is calling us to this great work. And the people committed themselves to rebuilding. And then they said in this wonderful phrase, and they committed themselves to the common good. They committed themselves to the common good. That phrase, actually, when you come forward today and, and leave your pledge, uh, that phrase is on a block here. Uh, they committed themselves to the common good. And each and every one of you is going to be invited to take one of these blocks and take it with you today as we remember the call upon our lives and upon this church. But what I want us to think about just for a second before we begin is I want you to think about um, uh, and for us to, to, to interact real quickly around the idea of telling stories. There are certain people who are really gifted storytellers, Right? They tell a story, and whether you were there at the event they were describing or not, it becomes alive for you. Uh, you kind of get caught up in the story. There's a point that's often made at the end, and, and you can kind of see the point of it, and it comes together. And there are other people, and God loves them just as much, who are not as good at telling stories. They can tell you about the exact same event, but it doesn't have the kind of like or flair to it, or you don't, you, don't, you don't find yourself in the same place. It's hard to connect with it in the same way. Again, not judging the quality of the human being. God loves everybody, but some people are better storytellers than others. And what I want us to think about for a second, and I'd like you to raise your hand uh, and maybe give me something real quick, is what makes a good storyteller? What are the elements that separate someone who's good at telling stories from maybe someone that's maybe not as good. What goes in to telling a good story? There's emotion. Thank you. There's an emotion. There's a passion that goes in it. If someone's telling you a story and it seems like they're bored by it, you're probably going to be bored by it too. So there's kind of a passion and an emotion. Thank you. What else goes into it? Connection. So there's a sense of making a connection. Why does this matter to me? And why does this matter to the people hearing it? What else goes into a good story? Humor. humor. Yes. Yeah, it kind of, it, 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 for a lot of different reasons, humor is really good. What else? Unexpected. What's that? Unexpected. Yeah, there's something unexpected. There's kind of a suspense that's there in it. What else? Sincerity. Sincerity. 
What makes the story come alive for people? Embellishment, and then there's kind of like. <laughs> the fish was that big, right? And in these things, there are details there. There's things that allow the story in that, that, that you can picture it and see it, right? But when you're kind of telling these stories, when you're telling this, having details, no matter how accurate they may be, right? What's the danger in kind of using those details? What's the danger of that you can make a story not as effective when you're trying to make it come alive in those ways? You can give too much, right? Like there's a way that you can tell a story that allows people to come alive. They see something, they hear something, they can picture themselves there because you tell it in a way with a particular uh, kind of set of details that, that allow it to come alive. But a story can also bog down quickly if you give too many details or you give it the wrong embellishment or you kind of lose people in things that are just going, I, why is that important? And you're going, I don't know. I'm just kind of giving you all the information that I've got about the story. There's an art to that. There's a tension that's there in what we share and how we share it and, and when we don't. Now, there's a way that you could read the Bible, and I'm not saying this is right, but there's a way you could read the Bible and parts of it can come alive more than others, right? Parts of it seem to almost be better at, at, at telling stories than others because of this, this tension of how much detail but what's too much. For example, when you read the story of David and Goliath, it comes alive to you. You can picture David in the armor and then taking it off and finding the stones and going down into the valley to fight Goliath and the armies that are there. Like It's told in a way that's so vivid. You can, you can really put yourself there. Or, or when the parting of the Red Sea happens and Pharaoh's army is chasing after the Hebrew people and God frees them through the Red Sea and, and they're delivered to freedom on the other side. It's told in a way in the scriptures that it comes alive. There are other parts of the Bible where you could be sitting there going, do I really need to know all of this? Like, is it real? Right? Like the chapters of genealogy, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so who begat. You're like, I got it. Like, I'm, we got it, right? Or if you've ever read in Genesis when Noah is building the ark, that story is so vivid and the action keeps moving. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to the actual dimensions of building the ark, God's like, all right, Noah, get out your measuring stick. And I want you to know that the ark needs to be a certain number of cubits wide. And so I want you to measure the number of cubits that are there. And when you've measured that, I want you to bring out the number of lumber and wood for that cubit. And when all that's measured out, I then want you to take your measuring stick and it's supposed to be this many cubits long and start measuring again what that is and then bring out the lumber. And you're reading it going, I got it. It's a big boat. It's a really big boat. All of the animals got to fit in. It's starting to thunder. Can we keep this, you know, moving along here? Chapter three of Nehemiah, which we're about to read, tends in the latter category. It tends in the category of a lot of details that you're going, I, do we really need all of this, right? Now, the chapter that we're about to, to read the first four verses of, and we're only going to read the first four verses, is one of the longest chapters in Nehemiah. Okay, and it's 32 verses, and it is a very detailed litany of the people who built the wall, their names, and what sections of the wall they worked on. There is nothing else in the whole chapter except a very detailed litany of who worked on the wall and what section they worked on. 
So we're just going to read the first four verses. Trust me, the other 28 work exactly the same way. Okay? We're only going to read the first four, both for time, and I'll also, it just, I got to be able to pronounce these. Okay? <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then the high priest, Eliashib, set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built next to him. And next to them, Zakur, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshizabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bana, made repairs. And so on, and so on, and so on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would be with us today and that we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's not that there's nothing interesting in chapter 3. Some interesting stuff that's there, right? There's a pretty exhaustive list of the number of people. It seems like there was a very good turnout uh, among a, a diverse number of people who were there. Uh, there are some interesting parts about the fact that if you read the entire chapter, every gate and tower is mentioned in rebuilding, and they are mentioned in order. So Nehemiah was very meticulous of not just scattershot going this gate, this gate, this gate, but actually goes around in the order that the wall was built, marking who was there, marking what they were doing and how much they were, uh, you know, that's kind of interesting. Uh, There's some interesting parts about the language that says that there are certain parts of the wall that have to be rebuilt, and there are certain parts of the wall that just have to be repaired. Which is interesting. If you, if you look at it, the northern parts of the wall had to be completely rebuilt, while the southern parts of the wall had to more be repaired. Historians think that means when the Babylonians invaded and conquered Jerusalem, they breached the wall on the northern side, and they were already in the city when they conquered it, so they didn't need to destroy the southern wall. That's kind of an interesting factoid. But there is a part of reading this where you're going, seriously, do I really need to know Who put the bolts on the gates of the sheep gate and who was working next to them? And then on the fish gate, who put the hinges on the door of the gate that is there? Do we really need 32 verses of this? The first two chapters of Nehemiah is told in a way that the action just keeps happening and moving. And then it just completely changes when we get into chapter three. But I want us to all be aware of something today. When we come to these sections of scriptures, it's important to realize that they are told in this way for a reason. The genealogies are there for a reason. It's important for us to understand what that reason is. And it's not that Nehemiah went from being a really good storyteller in chapters one and two to just being a bad storyteller in chapter three, where you're going like, please, I don't need the details. There's a choice as someone who is relaying this to us that he is choosing to say, and there's a reason that he's choosing to say it. There's a point to all of this detail. And I believe that the point is this, and it is a critical point for all of us to be aware of as we come here today. 
Everybody present had something different that they could offer. But everybody's offering made a difference. Everybody there had something different that they could offer. But everybody's offering made a difference. You see, there's a choice of how Nehemiah has the wall built. It wasn't like common in the ancient world if you were going to build something to just say, everybody show up and do what you can. Structures at that time are built like structures are today, where there are experts who lead it and guide it. That was the normal way it happened. Think about this. Think about with all the construction and all the expansion and all the building in Austin, nothing works the way the wall works here. Nothing is built that way. Have any of you been to the new soccer stadium, the Q2 stadium? A few people? Yeah, okay. Uh, I, 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 haven't, I haven't been there yet either. I hear, you know, it's, it's supposed to be amazing. The Austin FC playing there. The U.S. women's national team has played there. The U.S. men's national team is playing there this week. Uh, but when Austin was awarded the, the MLS team to come play here, you know, they didn't sit there and go, all right, Austin, all two million of you on this day show up with a brick and we're all just going to kind of slap this thing together and build a soccer stadium, right? It didn't work that way. There were, there were world-renowned architects that bid to, to draw up the Q2 Stadium. There were uh, construction companies that built. This is what they do. They are experts in this. The workers and craftsmen who built it uh, put it all together. And then what we do is not build it, that after they're finished, we go in and critique it. We go in and go, oh, I love this part, but the parking, whoa, why didn't anybody think of that, right? And it's like, then we kind of go, oh, I like this and I don't like this. But we don't actually actively participate in the rebuilding. That's how a wall would normally be built. Nehemiah made a choice. Remember, part of why the wall is rebuilt better than it was before is because Nehemiah goes to the king of Babylon, King Artaxerxes, and says, can I have materials from your forest to rebuild the wall? And the king says yes. But what's important in scripture at times is what's not there, what's not said. What normally Nehemiah would have done is say, and can I have 25 of your most expert craftsmen for six months to come lead the construction? And he doesn't say that. King Artaxerxes had all kinds of people from around the world that were experts at doing this. Nothing that Nehemiah asked for was said no. Nehemiah does not ask for that. And I think what he's trying to do in telling us about how the wall is built is that there's a different way that the people of God build and it's not for just a select few to do the work. But it's something we all are empowered to do together. That what you bring, what I bring, what the person next to you brings is something different. Everybody brings a different offering, but everybody's offering matters. And it's important. It's critical. I was reading recently about uh, the importance of this when we think about what uh, is going on in the church in this country. And this article was talking about the uh, difference in what's taken place with certain aspects of the Reformation and what's been lost. The Reformation when the Protestant and Catholic churches in Europe uh, about 500 years ago split. And in that Reformation, there were certain tenets of the Reformation that they said, we need to get back to this. We need to get back to it being about Scripture, that Scripture, not tradition, is what guides and shapes the church. We need to get back to an economy of grace rather than an economy of deserving and earning uh, salvation or what you get. There are these hallmarks that are still the hallmarks of healthy churches today. But it said there's other parts of the Reformation that we have not done well. And one of the things that we have not done as well as the church is what's called the priesthood of all believers. 
That the church isn't just kind of a, done for a few people to be doing the work, but it's done for everybody to come, everybody empowered to do the ministry, to do the call of what they're supposed to do. I'm certain that if Nehemiah had had a bunch of builders, expert craftsmen from Babylon who had shown up, the wall would have been more uniform and probably more aesthetically pleasing. I think the wall that was rebuilt looked a little bit more like a patchwork quilt. And that's actually the beauty and the power of it. Think about all the people that were there. There were, there were uh, generations that did this together. Grandparents brought their grandchildren. And they weren't able to carry huge amounts of stone. Maybe these children were maybe able to carry one stone or one brick. But what was important is they went with their grandparents and did that work together. They all contributed something. There were people that were master builders that were there. If you go through uh, the, the 32 verses, there are builders who are there that were so good at what they do that they built large sections of the wall and supervised other people doing it. But then you also have, as you see here, priests and other pin pushers like me that are not all that into DIY. And yet they, it's not that we were exempt. It's not that we just sort of paid someone else to do it. It's that we went to and then we kind of put a few bricks up there and maybe they were a little wonky and maybe the mortar wasn't just right. But the point is we were working right next to the builders who were doing the larger sections. There were wealthier people there who were able to build whole towers, who were able to big, build the biggest parts and employ other people to do it. And thank goodness they were there. But there were other folks that for them, tithing or extravagant generosity meant they could bring one stone or they could do one yard of wall or they could do five yards of wall or they could do one hinge on the fish gate on the lock of the door. But what good is a 20-foot wall if the doors don't lock? Everybody can do something different. Everyone offers something different, but everyone's offering is critical. When I think about this, one of the images that comes to mind that I love, uh, that some of you have, have participated in, takes place on the first Friday night in December every year when we're in non-COVID times. The photo I'm going to bring up here is of the last time this took place in 2019. Uh, the first Friday night in December, uh, Beth and myself host the elders and the staff of this church for a Christmas party. And the elders and the staff are able to bring uh, significant others if they want to. Uh, and so we normally have between 70 and 80 individuals uh, crammed in our house. Uh, probably like me, when you see this, it's just like the COVID alarms going off uh, of what life was like before that. But we would just sort of everybody get together. Our house isn't designed for 70 to 80 people. And it's just great. We're just kind of in there together and people are just getting to hang out and be together and it's fun. But one of the elements that makes that night work the way it does is everyone brings a dish. Everyone there has to sign up and show up with something. They have to bring either a salad or appetizer. They have to sign up and bring a side, uh, and they, or they sign up and bring a dessert. And what we have to do is, is we have to take our dining table and we spread it out as far as it'll go. And you know those like leaves that you put in to make it bigger? It's the one time a year we pull them out. We put all the leaves in the table we can. We cover it with a tablecloth. It's as big as it can be. And every time someone comes in, they put a dish on the table. And the dishes are different sizes and the different dishes were cooked a certain way. And some of them have this ingredient and some of them were that. And there's Caesar salad and fruit salad and garden salad and you know all these different kinds of desserts. And it's all there on this table together. And a few years ago, someone said to me, it's like, you know, you could have this catered. 
You have a professional caterer that comes in and just sets up here. It would probably make it easier in some ways. And yes, we could do that. This church can afford to do that. In some ways, it might uh, be something that could work. But part of what I love about that night, part of the beauty of that night, is looking at that table with all of those different dishes that are there, with all of which have been prepared in a different way, and to say that there's something that will be lost if we don't do this. There's a beauty to that kind of patchwork quilt look to our table that is different than if it was just handled by someone outside. And that it's not just a financial decision and it's not just a logistical decision, but there's actually a spiritual element to that. That is Nehemiah chooses for the people to come and say, everybody's going to bring something different, but everybody's offering is going to make a difference and participate. Is to say that, 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 that there's a spiritual implication to the leadership of this church gathering once a year and going, what are you gonna bring? And whatever it is that you're gonna bring that's gonna be different than the person next to you, it's gonna make the night work for everybody because everything that people bring is important. Part of the health of this church has been the growth that we have seen in recent years and our budget has grown as well. Our ability to give has grown as well. But one of the things that I am grateful for in our budget is that as it has gotten bigger, it has also gotten wider. And what I mean by that is that we have got certain people who are unbelievably generous and in a part of life where they can build a tower. Like that's, what, that's, what, that's what tithing, that's what extravagant generosity looks like. This is, what, this is what I can contribute. And we are grateful for that. But what we don't have is five families that give 40% of our budget. The budget has gotten wider, and there are people that are in a place in their life or in a stage in their life where they're like, all I can do is carry a brick. This is all I can offer. And it's like, but that brick matters. Our budget is built on the same principles of Nehemiah, which is that we are dependent on everyone coming together to offer what they can so that we can continue to do the work we're called to do. And that is a good thing, that our budget is getting wider. And so today, this morning, as we invite you to come forward with your pledge, and today, this morning, as you maybe pledge online as part of this service, that there is a spiritual component to it. This is not a fundraising endeavor for an institution. But this is us taking the baton 2,500 years later from that community that came together and said, we are going to rebuild with whatever we can give and build the wall together to say that that is the exact same thing we are doing today. And everybody's going to give something different. But the different offerings are all important. And when that happens... Something wondrous happens. Something wondrous happens that should change how we live, but also change how we speak, how we talk, how we phrase things. I hear people say all the time, oh, the church where I go does this. The church where I go does that. No, no, no. You are the church. It happens because of you. Oh, the church where I'm going is growing. And in the midst of churches that are in a time of decline, our church has been growing and it's engaging people, many of whom were not part of a church before coming. That's true, but it's not the church that you go to that does it. You are doing it. You are making it happen. You are setting up the kind of community and living in a way and praying in a way that others want to come be a part of it. We do it together, all in our different ways, but you make it happen. 
When we talk about lives growing in discipleship and the explosion of our small group ministry and Bible studies and prayer ministries, all of which is happening, it's not the church that you go to that does that. You do that. You make that happen. And lives are being changed as we move from a culture of loneliness and isolation to knowing who we're walking with. You do that work. And when we talk about outreach in the community, whether it's a a, a drive for uh, homeless friends and brothers and sisters to come to our campus and to receive services or a vaccine, or or when we do uh, the, the ministry that we did with medical debt being forgiven for thousands of families living at or below the poverty line all throughout Austin and Central Texas, it's not the church you're going to that does that. You did that. You made that happen. All of us coming together were a part of the miracle of people receiving a letter that going, this debt that has defined your life, it no longer exists. And we did that together. And the call before us is today is this, let's do it again. Let's do it again in the months and in the year ahead. Let's do it again together, all of us bringing what we have so that we can lead in the effort together of rebuilding our lives, of rebuilding our relationships, of rebuilding our world. That call is upon us, and today is an essential day for that call to move towards a reality. Let's do it again. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, lead us, guide us as your people. And we lift this prayer up this day. In Jesus' name, amen.